wanted to start this morning just aware that we are a people who serve a God who loves us. And part of that love is that he wants us to live a life that is full. And I just wanted to start with prayer this morning. That if you are feeling any errors of your life where there's something missing, if there is something where you are experiencing pain, where you're experiencing loss, we're experiencing ill health. We have a God that loves us and he wants to outpour himself to us. And so I wanted to start this morning just with prayer. And if you've got a prayer need, just put your hand up and let the people around you just pray for you and we'll pray for you as well. God knows what those things are. He, he is the all-knowing, all-loving, sovereign God of the universe, right? So he knows what you're going through. So let's pray and ask him now just to speak into our situation. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed a loving God, that, Lord, you love us intimately, and that, Lord, you know us intricately. Lord, you know all the issues that are going on in our lives. You know where there are issues of of our bodies that need healing. You know there are issues where our relationships need healing. You know there are issues where our circumstances need your intervention your guidance, your grace, and your leading. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning you would do mighty things in and through the lives of your people that are here today. And so, Lord, I just come before you and I ask that you bring a special blessing of your grace upon us, that we can go boldly into our week and into our lives in the future, Lord, with that calm assurance that, Lord, you work all things for the good of those who love you. And so, Lord, I pray those of us here today, Lord, we love you. And so, Lord, would you do a mighty work of healing, of guidance, of direction, of restoration within us today. Amen. But if you've been journeying with us through Acts, you would have seen uh, that from the very start, the gospel was going out. You know, it was going to go out to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Ultimately, to you and I here today. That's great. You've been paying attention. Acts 1.8. But so far, we've got right through Acts to chapter 7, and where are we? We're still in Jerusalem. And so today, we're going to bite off a fair bit of scripture, because we're going to go through chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. All right, so we had lunch plans. Cancel them. Um, so we're going to go through four or five chapters of Acts, and we're going to see the gospel expand. And so that's what we really want us to do today is to see it expand. Because where we left off last week was Stephen's persecution caused a pivoting point for the church. As the church up until that time, people had not been necessarily um, their lives threatened, but now there has been a death, and so that has changed. And if you were here last week, you would have recounted um, the great courtroom drama where Stephen showed us that without Jesus at the centre, our stories are misshaped, and the true Lord of our lives is Jesus. And so if we don't have Jesus as our Lord at the centre of our lives, then we've got our story wrong. And so we're introduced to Saul. And so Saul becomes a major character now in the book of Acts. And we're going to pick up chapter 1 of verse 8. Saul approved of their killing. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, in Acts, we see God accomplishing his mission for the gospel to spread out from Jerusalem. But if we're honest... 
aren't you and I a little bit bummed about the way that he's doing it? Isn't it a bit disappointing that, yeah, sure, the gospel's spreading, but couldn't God have chosen a different way for it to spread than by people being harassed, dragged off to prison and persecuted for their faith? How often do we have moments like these where we have that little voice inside our mind that just questions the method God uses to accomplish his plans and purposes. Why persecution? Why painful and difficult circumstances? Why such a challenging, harsh and uncomfortable way? You know, I find uh, myself quietly thinking these thoughts with a little bit of regularity. And when I do, this one verse comes to mind. And I don't know where it's stuck in my mind from, but it comes all the time. And it's Isaiah 55, 8-9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isn't that great? As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And you know what? This little quiet reminder helps me and my thinking realign with a more godly perspective. See, we are not to understand everything, but we can have confidence and trust in him who does. And so it's pretty reassuring that he is the all-knowing sovereign God of the universe. And sometimes that little reminder is really pertinent. And the comfort that comes with that also is really valuable. But to accomplish God's mission of the gospel going out, it required people to dis birth to the far reaches of the world and up until Stephen people had only been imprisoned but now with the threat of death for faith in Jesus Christ they begin to flee Jerusalem and replant themselves all over verse 4 those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed they all paid close attention to what he said for with shrieks impure spirits came out of many and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so there was great joy in that city where the gospel is proclaimed there is great joy in the city and so if we look geographically at the area Samaria is about 50 kilometers north of Jerusalem and we see that the gospel it breaks out into Samaria in a very similar way to what has occurred in Jerusalem you know people are being healed spirits are being cast out Jesus is being proclaimed and joy is spreading Uh, the word of this reaches back to Jerusalem And there's a new gospel work going on in Samaria. And in verse 14, they send Peter and John to check it out. Not to verify if these things had happened, but to see if it's the same gospel. Are lives being transformed? Are are we beginning to see the promise of Jesus beginning to be fulfilled? And so they go, they see the same gospel is being preached. The same results that they saw in Jerusalem were taking place in Samaria. And there was a glad celebration that the gospel began to spread. And then they worked their way back to Jerusalem to report that this distinct gospel movement there in Samaria is the same gospel being preached in Jerusalem. And look what they do on the way home in verse 25. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And so on their trip home, they didn't just take the fastest, most expedient route like I want to whenever I have to travel anywhere. If, if, if I can get from point A to point B in three minutes less, I'll take that route than the other one. But what they did was they actually stopped off along the way in different villages. And so they would, you know, duck off here and duck off there and 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 share the gospel and there's the gospel is beginning 
to spread. And then we read the spirit leads Philip along the road to Gaza to an Ethiopian eunuch who was reading aloud Isaiah riding in his chariot. And it says Philip came alongside him and heard him reading from the book of Isaiah. And I'm not sure about you, but when was the last time you were able to keep up with the chariot? But anyway, the spirit enables him to run alongside and hear this eunuch read aloud the book of Isaiah. And he goes, do you understand this? And I'm pretty sure that if you saw this bloke running up beside your chariot and he's listening to what you're reading, you'd be going, okay, you've obviously got some insight here because this is not normal. And so he invites him on board his chariot and he explains to him all of the passage and what it's saying. And he's actually reading a passage that was prophesying the death of Jesus. And so he shares the good news of Jesus with the eunuch. And the Ethiopian responds in faith. He sees some water. He asks why he can't be baptized. And so he orders his chariot to be stopped and uh, is baptized by Philip. You know, this is an immediate outward expression of faith devotion and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and that's exactly what you and I do in the waters of baptism it's exactly the same then we read in 839 when they came up out of the water the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing now I don't know about you but I'm pretty keen to try out this gospel teleportation right because it says that he whisked him away immediately. He was gone. And we read later, he actually just pops up in Azotus. And that's a fair few kilometers away. Now, I'm pretty sure that if uh, the gospel, if, if you know, God wanted me to do gospel work somewhere else, he's given me a car for that. And that sucks because I wish I had gospel teleportation, right? How good would that be for gospel purposes? Bang, you're right where you need to be. And that's what happened here in Acts. And I guess it brings up the question of descriptive versus prescriptive again, doesn't it, with this book of Acts? But anyway, um, Philip, however, appeared in Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So if you know anything about geography, in, in you've got Jerusalem. Um, I'll try and do it backwards for you. Um, you've got Jerusalem. Then you've got Gaza down um, pretty much on the coast. And Azotus is sort of here. And then Caesarea is up further. And so he, he's on the road to Gaza at some point with his chariot. And then just bang, straight into Azotus. The gospel spreading all over the region. Chapter 9, we pick up the story again, though, of Saul. And who you remember, he was kicking down doors, dragging men and women into the street, arresting them, parading them, shaming them on their way to prison in front of the people of Jerusalem, trying to crush the spread and the growth of Christianity. Well, Saul of Tarsus now has papers from the ruling authorities to go to Damascus, which is about 255 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem, a journey of about eight or nine days, regardless of whether you're on an animal or you are the animal. And somewhere along the way, fairly close to Damascus, the Bible tells us a bright light shines on Saul of Tarsus, knocking him off his horse, and Jesus speaks to him audibly, and Saul of Tarsus is converted to Christianity. And then he's led into Damascus, now blinded by the light that knocked him off his horse. So the most fierce and 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 um, the most, uh, I don't know, how do you explain, the, the worst opponent to Christianity that pretty much was in existence at the time, God saved. The most opposite to what you'd want to see for people following and spreading the word of Christ. You know, this person who's been hounding and who has been persecuting the church in Jerusalem, 
God saved. Isn't that a great God we serve? And the word of the Lord came to Ananias. And God tells Ananias that Saul of Tarsus is on Straight Street. Go and heal him. Now, I don't know about you, but if your reputation is one of wanting to destroy people who are followers of Jesus Christ, imprison them, kill them, all that's going on, and God says to you, hey, that guy that's been doing that, um, I want you to go and heal him. Come on. Seriously? Really? And so Ananias has a bit of a problem with this instruction from God. He brings it up. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Now, I think we've got the sanitized version in scripture here. Because I reckon if God said to me in the same situation, go and heal this person, I would have so many more questions than just this. You know, I would have so many more objections and in such stronger language. But anyway, he asked the God the questions that we often ask. Are you sure? But here God graciously answers Ananias and just says, yes. Yes, I'm sure. You know, he doesn't rebuke Ananias. He doesn't say, you of little faith or anything like that. He just said, yes, I'm sure. Because um, he, he will be my voice to the Gentiles and I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias goes, he prays over Saul of Tarsus and something like scales fall off the eyes. He's baptized and he adds something to eat. Very important. And in Acts 9 verses 20, we pick it up. And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, at once. You see, Saul knew the Old Testament intricately. He had the entire Old Testament committed to memory. And so God saves a Old Testament scholar in remarkable circumstances, in an encounter of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ that I'm sure we all wish we could have every day. God saves this man who has an intricate understanding of the Old Testament and now he goes about teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. He has all the information he needs and the Holy Spirit enabling him to connect all the dots in the Old Testament that the Jews missed. And so all of those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Oh my goodness, again. Anyway, Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Follow with me to verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. If only all ministry was this simple. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon, or Shazza as we call it, saw him and turned to the Lord. And so what happens next is that we see a woman named Tabitha, whose name translated means Dorcas. Uh, she was a generous woman who sewed and put together cloaks for impoverished women. This Tabitha, she gets sick. And the church knows that Peter is not far away. And so they send word to Peter to come to Joppa in order to pray for and hopefully heal Tabitha. 
But on the way, Tabitha dies. Her body is washed and her body is laid in an upper room until Peter can get there. Peter gets there, walks upstairs where this dead body is, prays for Tabitha, and she is raised from the dead. I mean, talk about the big time. I mean, seriously, this is a massive event. Someone is raised from the dead. There is no greater act of healing than healed from death. And so Acts 9.42, this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. And so we see the gospel start in Jerusalem with 120 people. Then it grew to 3,120 people, then over 10,000. And so we see the gospel now going out and going out and going out. It's like in the movies, you know, where there's some sort of global uh, epidemic and you know sort of you, you're in this you know control room and in this room you, you know the scenes where there's, there's the army generals there's the scientists there's the politicians and so they're all talking about you know this screen pops up is patient zero on day one within six hours this is the, the map of it spreading within 12 hours it's going to be here within 24 hours that's spreading you know six months later um, the, you know the whole globe is red and will all be wiped out by the zombie apocalypse you know those sorts of things yeah well that's kind of what we've seen so far in the book of acts but we're still only in that little area we're still really only with jews and so what we're going to see from chapter 10 on is the gospel crosses ethnic lines see we're taken to caesarea and we are introduced to an italian by the name of cornelius who has rejected roman polytheism and is a good man he prays regularly looks after the poor and does a lot more good things. Cornelius is given a vision to send for Peter and does so. Well, at this time, Peter is also given a vision of God pronouncing that there's nothing unclean. You see, Gentiles were historically viewed as unclean. And so God's word comes to Peter through food and dietary restrictions. And God says there's no such thing as unclean because I made it, and if I made it, then it is clean. And praise the Lord he did, because that means that you and I can enjoy bacon. You know, there's a lot of conflict in the Middle East. You know the one thing that those countries have in common? Bacon's prohibited. And I reckon that there'd be a lot more peace in the world if people would just enjoy the goodness of bacon. Maybe that's, maybe that's what they need. You know, is a moratorium on bacon, and then the joy will fill their... No, anyway. Um, so Peter goes to court. Cornelius' house, preaches the gospel to Cornelius' family and friends, and in verse 44 of chapter 10, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Italians, not Jews, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Just putting it out there, okay? Gospel spreading. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, those lowly scum that we all are. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. So now the gospel is not just crossing city lines and regional lines. It's now crossing ethnic lines as we've got our first Italian convert and his family and his friends. And so the message of God's salvation for all humanity has now begun to be fulfilled as the gospel goes out crossing these cultural and ethnic divisions. And Peter then has to give a defence because you know, the church at times has, has been and continues to sometimes be a foolish 
institution and organization. Because even today you'll find parts of churches that are this way. Because after Cornelius becomes a Christian, the church gathers, get this, they gather together to decide whether or not God can do that. They gather to, to, to decide, can God go outside and work outside the bounds of the Jewish people? That's what they're deciding. Can God do that? How often do we put God in a box and do the same thing? God can't do that. Well, yes, he can. He's the all-knowing, sovereign God of the universe. He can do whatever he likes. We can't put him in boxes because he does not respond to our boxes. So Peter, he has to staunchly defend the Holy Spirit pouring himself out on these Gentile converts. And after his defense, we pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 11. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So again, we see the gospel spreading. And it's spreading to cities all over the area, from 255 kilometers north of Jerusalem to 90 kilometers northwest, 60 kilometers south, all over. But in chapter 12, it does get a little bit gritty. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Now, why four squads? I mean, wasn't this guy just a fisherman? Why do you need four squadrons of soldiers? You know, Roman soldiers. They, these, these weren't the smartest of people. The Pharisees testified that, you know, they were unlearned men, and yet four squads of soldiers had been assigned to his guard. But if you've been following Acts, you know why. Because they just can't seem to keep these guys in prison. They lock him up, then there's an earthquake, and he's back in the temple teaching. They lock him up, an angel lets him out, and so this time he's like, four squads, four squads, I know, that'll do. Four squads, four men, lock him up. But we see that Herod has taken this very violent stance towards believers. You know, one of the apostles has already been killed with a sword. And I'm sure that extrapolating from the text, you know, violence was befalling other Christians. And Peter has been arrested because the mob loved Herod for killing James and taking a violent hand to the church of Jesus Christ. And so it's pretty clear that Herod's plan for Peter is not one that will have him smelling the roses. It's more like one that would have him pushing up daisies because Herod is applauded for the slaughter of Christians. He does not have healthy intent towards Peter. It says in the text that after the feast, he was going to give Peter over to the mob. And we see, we've already seen what the mob has done. And so four squads. And I'm pretty sure that God wasn't like, oh no, four squads. What am I going to do this time? Angel appears. 
Chains fall off. He gets dressed. Off he goes. Gates open by themselves. And once he's safe, the angel leaves. And only then is he convinced that it's not a dream. This Peter. So chapter 12 ends this way in verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Amen. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, uh, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. And now there's some things that I want us to learn from our time this morning traveling through Acts. First thing, all the beauty in the world and all the life in the world and all the blessing that comes from being alive, the world will at times look chaotic and out of control. And there will be heartbreak and loss and suffering that feels like it doesn't fit in with the God who loves us. And although it looks chaotic to us, it never looks chaotic to God, ever. It never looks out of control. He's never going, oh no, what now? You see, God doesn't drive in an ambulance. He doesn't show up afterwards and try to put the pieces back together. That's not how he works. God governs the chaos. You know, this needs to sink deep inside our soul because the world that we're in is broken and because there will be a day if you haven't been there yet where you are perplexed but not crushed where you are confused and find it hard to reconcile the goodness of God with your circumstances you know countless times over the last three or four years as I've sat through hundreds of funeral services I've been astounded at the people's stories that have been shared and the impact that they've had on those that have been left behind. You know, and, and the ones, that the, the services of people that really grabbed me the most were often young people, you know, who were vivacious and full of life, who, who were struck down with a tumour or cancer or some other tragic circumstance took their life. And a few come straight to mind. There was this one particular girl or lady, um, uh, she was in her early 20s, who developed a, a brain tumour. And she named the tumour, I can't remember what the name was, um, but it was something cute. Um, and so her and her tumour went travelling. They went around. She was, a, a, you know, raised in a Christian home, was a lovely Christian girl. Um, the chapel seated 360 and there was that seated and more standing. And so there's probably 800 people at this girl's funeral. And as I played the video of her life in pictures, you can see the bright, bubbly person that she was bringing life and joy to everyone around her yet God took her home now why couldn't God have taken one of the grumpy ones home you know they get glory and nothing to complain about there we 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 don't have to listen to them anymore you know we all win if God just takes the grumpy one you see it's perplexing but God reigns and rules and governs over the chaos you know the reasons Christians can have joys on days such as those is that God is sovereign over all things, including the day of death, and that he is good and beautiful in that governance. So how do we reconcile those two things? You know, isn't this the question that is often thrown in the face of people of faith? If God is good, then how can we explain all the things that have gone wrong in the world? How do we explain the death of children? How do we explain disease? You know, David Attenborough has been on the record stating that he can't possibly believe in a God who would create such a parasite that feeds solely on the optic nerve and blinds tribal people living in the jungle. You know, and this man has probably seen more of a testimony of God's goodness throughout all of creation than you and I will ever, ever get to poke a stick at 
But this one parasite has been a stumbling block to him believing in God's goodness. How do you explain these things if God is all-powerful and good? I don't know. Maybe it's the effect of sin in the world. I think that probably has a large part to play. But really, I don't know. I'm not God. Now, I'm 35, and I'm actually, believe it or not, fairly well educated. I've got two squashed tomatoes on the wall, or diplomas, or bachelors, or whatever you want to call them. I call them squashed tomatoes, because, you know, that's what they look like. I've travelled overseas to several different countries, um, and I've had the privilege of, of, a, of a, an upbringing and an education that, you know, many in the world don't get. And so I've kept myself very fortunate uh, for the experiences and the education I've received. Now, Serena, who is eight, has a very different way about looking at the world. You know, she has a way that she would like things to be. She has a time that she would like to go to bed. She has her own ideas about needing a shower, and I see that differently. Now, if you've met Serena, you know what I'm talking about. She is very, let's say, strong-willed. But if such a gap exists between her and I, what must the gap be that which to that which is finite, that's me, to him who is infinite? You know, we are like dew on the grass in the morning, gone in the afternoon by comparison. You know, what must the gap be between us and the sovereign king of glory? You know, I had better not be able to understand how God is governing or or how God is doing anything he does because if I did, then God is too small a God for me to worship. We do, however, trust that he is good because how can we trust that he is good in those difficult days? Well, we can trust that he is good in those difficult days because of the cross. God's initiating love towards us in Jesus. And so for the believer, we see that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf and for the glory of God gives us confidence. Because for us, bad days, no matter how horrific, regardless of how soul-crushing, heart-failing, overwhelming these days are, bad days for the Christian will always lead to better days and ultimately to the best of day but it often doesn't sit well with us and that's because in our culture in every measurable and possible way our culture has no foresight for tomorrow it's just today what i want today what i want to enjoy today you know i mean i've been astounded at the proliferation of services like uber eats you can now have your most favorite restaurant quality meal delivered to you on your couch. I mean, I'm astounded. We live for today. There have been even reports of Melbourne private schools where kids standing at the gate at lunchtime having Uber Eats delivered their lunch to them at school. It's all about today. It's all about quick and easy today. I'm not sure about you, but when I was at school, I would have loved a chicken party for lunch. I'm glad that I wasn't grown up then because if I did, then I don't think I'd be as skinny as I am now. It's all about things being quick and easy now and we've become slaves to the God of comfort and convenience and today and that God keeps betraying us yet our society keeps worshipping him. But for the Christian, our hope is not in today. Our hope is in tomorrow, not today. In fact, Jesus said in this life you will have trouble. You know, he's not a liar. We shouldn't be surprised when we do have trouble. But take heart, he said, because I've overcome. And here are some verses that are incredibly comforting for those bad days. Romans 8, 28. 
And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so we know that God works all things together for my good and his glory. 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, long to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I knew there was a reason I didn't like camping. Because it's not our home. And that's what the Apostle Paul is speaking about. This life is temporary. It's not our permanent home. What is mortal will be swallowed up by life. This body breaks down. This body gets sick. This body needs rest. This body feels pain. This body gets tired. And so we groan to be out of this body. Just like I groan at the thought of staying in a tent. But what is mortal is what we call life, right? And Paul says that what is mortal will be consumed by life. Do you get that? So there is a type of life that is greater than what you and I are walking in now. This is not our home. So we shouldn't feel perfectly at peace and comfortable here. It's not our home. That's still coming. That's tomorrow. And so until then, we groan. In Revelation chapter 24 and Isaiah 65 verse 17 say pretty much the same thing, but Isaiah is very much shorter, so I'm going to go there. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Things that rob us of joy will not be remembered. Isn't that a blessing? Your bad days will always lead to better days, which will ultimately lead to perfect days. But for now, we can be assured of this. In this world, we will have trouble. But take heart, he has overcome the world. You see, all the blessings that we see in Acts, we also have to keep in mind that Stephen was killed. His primary ministry, get this, was caring for the widows. Why would you kill that guy? James, he's killed with a sword. Saul has his life threatened and has to escape down the city wall in a basket. Peter keeps getting thrown into prison. These were real men, many of them, the Bible tells us, with families. And yet this man, Peter, when all said is done, he's going to be crucified upside down. God is at work in the chaos. And my last point this morning is this. The mission of God to declare the work of Jesus to the ends of the earth cannot be stopped regardless of adversary. And so what we've seen happening in these four or five chapters and what we've seen happening throughout Christian history is people who wish to destroy the Christian faith. And yet the harder they press, the more it grows. You know, the Roman Empire ruled from India to England and they did all they could to stamp out Christianity in some of the most brutal ways imaginable. Yet by 351 AD across the empire, over 50% of the people professed faith in Jesus Christ. And over 50%. So that's some estimated 350 million people professed faith in Jesus Christ. The mission of God to declare the work of Jesus to the ends of the earth cannot be stopped. And so in the midst of our chaos, God's mission continues to grow and to flourish. The gospel continues to be proclaimed. People are still coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ and we get to be part 
of his mission. You know, I had a guy pop in this week uh, into the office um, from the Salvo Church just to say hi. Um, and he was saying there's some person that he likes speaking on current political issues and the climate that we see. You know, and, and, and it's true that we, I think, are grieving the loss that Christianity has, you know, in its place to speak into our society. You know, we're grieving the loss of the place that we had, one of, of trust, one of of, I guess, adherence, um, one of popularity, and we grieve the loss of that place, you know, because, you know, the Western world basically was founded upon Judeo-Christian heritage, and, and we, we now see that that is not only unpopular, but there's legislation popping up all the time to get rid of that. And so, in one, on one hand, I grieve the loss of the place that Christianity has had, but on the other side, I'm excited, because now, you know, for the first time, pretty much, in the Western world for a fairly long time, it actually costs us something to be a person who has faith in Jesus Christ. It actually costs us something. And so it's no longer a free ride. It's no longer a popular thing to do. It's no longer the easy path. And so in one hand, whilst I grieve, I'm also excited because that means that people who are followers of Jesus Christ, they do it regardless of the cost. And I'm excited by that. I'm excited that the gospel continues to flourish despite of opposition. The mission of God to declare his work of Jesus to the ends of the earth cannot be stopped regardless of adversary. So today has been pretty heavy charging through four or five chapters of Acts. It's been a lot of scripture. But I really wanted to see that the gospel flourishing and expanding regardless of chaos, regardless of circumstances, regardless of opposition, regardless of persecution. So today I want you to be encouraged to step out in faith and to step out in the gospel regardless of your circumstances share the gospel be active be bold be confident the gospel is the power unto salvation do the most loving thing that you can possibly do for someone and introduce them to jesus amen